Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today I have the privilege of hosting a special episode uh, which we've entitled Research and Journal Publications Why and How with special guest Dr. Matt Carlson. Dr. Carlson, thank you for being here today. John, thanks for having me. So today we're going to try and touch on a number of different high-yield topics related to research, um, covering everything from selecting a mentor, selecting a research project or idea, um, to writing the paper, the sometimes awkward situations surrounding authorship, as well as just pragmatic things related to journal selection, submission, the review process, that sort of thing. But before getting into that, I just wanted to briefly introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Carlson. He's a neurotologist at a very large tertiary referral center here in the United States. He's also fellowship director of neurotology at his program. He's the author of almost 300 peer-reviewed publications to date, author of several books, as well as a PI on several different grants, including some large ongoing clinical trials. And then perhaps most importantly, um, he has mentored countless medical students, residents, and fellows on this topic related to research and um, early career development. And so I think this episode will be very um, practically useful. So Dr. Carlson, just to get started, though, I wanted to take a step back and ask the question, why engage in research to begin with? I think a lot of times, especially amidst a very busy residency schedule, it's easy to lose sight of why we're doing it. And oftentimes people feel like they don't have the time to really put a lot of effort into research. So can you tell us a little bit about why you think it's valuable to engage in research early on? Oh, thanks, John. That's a that's a great question. I totally agree with you, uh, particularly as a resident. Um, we always say that we you know, like to balance research education and clinical care. But in reality, as a very busy resident, clinical care uh, takes consumes almost all of our time. And then what's left over, unfortunately, is relegated towards taking care of yourself and uh, exercise and things like that. And the very last is typically what we spend on research. And so it's often deprioritized. It's difficult to really balance things. Um, I think when you think about why is it important to do research, I think there's a lot of different ways you can answer that question. But most broadly, it really encompasses one of the three cornerstones of academic medicine clinical care research and uh, education. And um, I think, you know, later on in your career, uh, some of the most self-rewarding aspects of research are uh, come along with the idea that you came up with an idea, you came up with a project, you saw it through, and it resulted in a positive change in your field directly. And most importantly, it resulted in improvement in patient outcomes. And that really is the end goal of research is to advance medicine and most importantly, improve patient outcomes. But beyond that, there are some more immediate benefits, some more tangible benefits that we can consider and uh, really definitely do impact us early on in our career. So why is it important? Well, research really makes you or forces you to study a topic in very deep depth. It's not like you're just reading a book chapter superficially in Bailey's or Cummings where you might retain two or three important facts and that's it. Um, to really write a research project, uh, to write a paper and to do the, the background work, really forces you to know the topic extremely well. And I would say some of the best or some of the deepest learning I did as a resident, in fact, was uh, related to the research projects I was working on. I retained that clinical information a lot better. And so in many ways, it makes you a better clinician. You know, by studying background data and designing a research plan and uh, drafting a manuscript, you also become a much more uh, efficient reviewer of the literature it's a skill that will benefit you throughout your career. So you can read a publication, quickly understand based on the study design, uh, population, context, uh, whether or not it really applies to you, whether or not it was done in a quality manner, 
and what sort of biases or confounding factors influence the conclusions, which obviously are significant um, issues with any sort of research. Very early on in your career, um, if you publish on a specific topic over and over, you can actually quickly become recognized as an expert on that subject. Uh, and as you get better and as you know more about that topic, each successive project related to that becomes a lot easier. Uh, and so uh, research is really important uh, part of early career development, and that's defining your niche within the specialty. And then, you know, whether you want to admit it or not, publications are really one of the most important and tangible measures of academic productivity. Anybody can work in a lab over a summertime. Anybody can, uh, you know, be a fifth person on a project. But for you to see, uh, start something, uh, see it through and have a publication at the end demonstrates determination and commitment. Um, and I would say just as a general rule, as residents, if you're a resident listening to this right now, if you can just do this simple thing, if you don't take anything else away, uh, just really focus on publishing one or two reasonable quality papers uh, each year and try to be first author on one of them. And that will really help strengthen your fellowship application and your future academic job application. So when we talk about, um, you know, the number of, pu number of publications you have and how that uh, looks on your CV, it's not just that you want to have 100 case reports. You want to make sure you have some papers that are high impact and you might have some that are less impactful and you have a balanced uh, curriculum vitae. Uh, there is something that I'm sure you'll hear about along your research journey, and that's the H index. And that kind of comes and goes in and out of style, but I think it's worth at least knowing what it is. So the H index uh, is assigned to you. Each individual person will have an H index, and it's based on the number of publications that you've, that you've had, but it also weights them according to the number of citations that you've had. So how this is determined, you can actually look up on Google Scholar, for example, and determine your H index. But um, how it's calculated is you'll take all of your publications you've ever done and put them on individual rows. And you'll put the publication that was cited the most frequently on the top, and you'll successively move down to the one that was referenced the least. And the row number that matches the number of times a certain one was cited or referenced is your H index. So in other words, if your 30th row was referenced 30 times, that would be your H index. Your H index would be 30 in that example. And it's not a perfect measure. It has its limitations, but it is a good way to kind of balance the uh, and control for the people that just publish a lot of papers that aren't impactful and also uh, also benefits those, uh, benefits those people that publish more impactful papers, but just not as many. You know, the last thing that I think is still worth mentioning uh, when we talk about the benefits of research is it it's a really an indirect advertisement for you and for your uh, department and your institution. Um, patients in particular are becoming a lot more savvy and it's very uh, common that uh, a patient will read the literature and even the scientific literature and you may even come to your clinic or practice uh, as a self-referral um, based on some research or some publications that you've done. And certainly I get emails from patients, not infrequently, and I, and I do see patients who will come to clinic and make their appointments just because they saw that I published on something and I had a particular interest in a topic. So a lot of different reasons why you'll consider research. Some are, you know, more long-term and more altruistic, and other ones are more about your individual career development. But for many reasons, it's important. You know, as a trainee, often we can't really even engage in research without first identifying a mentor. And identifying a mentor can end up really being a deal breaker in terms of our research success and our experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about how to identify a good mentor for research? Absolutely. That's a really critical question. And I want to start by saying, you know, there's different types of mentors uh, we've all had and you you will have 
uh, during your career. Those are, uh, you know, they could be somebody who gives career advisement or personal advisement. You know, we all go through situations where we're trying to balance everything, our clinical care, our research, our family time, our, our personal time. And in many ways, you'll get good advice from different people. But specifically here, we're talking about a research mentor. Um, you know, naturally, most people will, will think that the best research mentor you can have is someone who's the most well-known that's still accessible to you. And uh, this might be true, but it might not be. Um, oftentimes, these people that are very well-known are often uh, just very busy, and they might not have the time to go through all the steps of the process with you in the detail that you might need, particularly if you're just starting out. And they're also more far removed from the earlier processes, that some of the things you're struggling with. And so, um, again, just a general rule of thumb, but oftentimes a person who's kind of mid-career or even early career uh, may be a very good mentor for you, particularly if you're just starting out on research projects. You know, there are different types of people. If you're a self-starter and you really uh, have been doing, you've already done some projects and you feel like you've done well at them and you've been successful and gotten some publications on your belt, it's not unreasonable to also work with uh, some of these more well-known people because, of course, um, you know, networking and connections are also important in, in academia. Um, but again, as a general rule, if you're just starting off, I would really try to focus on uh, the early uh, and mid-career person. Um, another uh, very critical aspect is um, is the productivity of your mentor. So if you're working in a lab that only produces, you know, or finishes one project or one paper every two years, um, you're not likely going to walk away from that experience with a number of publications. And um, you want to have quality, but you also want to have some level of quantity because they're, you know, they're both important in different ways. And so um, you want to find that balance. You want to find somebody that can work with you who's reasonably productive and somebody who's in, you know, aligns with your interests and also your personality type. Yeah. And when talking about being productive, I think that one of the biggest challenges as a resident, especially in ENT, is the reality that residency is very busy. Um, and, you know, often I've thought about working in teams and trying to get a gauge of what's useful at your institution um, can be something that might facilitate research. But can you talk a little bit more about how to work in a team and take advantage of what's around you? No, I think that's really uh, a critical aspect. And, um, you know, a lot of these things we're talking about now are very much, um, you know, based on my personal experiences, some things I've learned the hard way and other things that I felt like I kind of fell upon, luckily. Uh, and I think there's a lot of different ways to think about these things. And um, so for me, one thing that uh, that just kind of naturally happened that I, f f I felt was in hindsight, very, a very good thing was uh, during residency, all through residency, uh, each different PGY year, I'd have one or two or maybe two or three residents who I uh, identified with and who had similar research interests and also had a similar level of enthusiasm for doing research. And we were just, we just had a very good synergistic relationship. Uh, we tag team different projects. And, and so one person might be leading the project and you'll provide a critical review or you might help identify some of the data. And then conversely, you could head a different paper and um, that sort of relationship allows you to be more productive. It also helps with idea generation, brainstorming, um, and, and frankly, it's just more fun to work in a group of people who are also enthusiastic. I think everybody kind of feeds off of each other with that infectious enthusiasm. Um, and so for me, that was really beneficial. Um, you know, one thing I've realized working at the institution I do is that it's a, it's a very big institution. And uh, if you, a lot of times it's just all about trying to find people in different areas uh, that are sub, you know, sub experts in different topics. So 
you know, if I wanted, I'm not a, I, you know, my undergraduate degree was in molecular, uh, molecular biology and genetics. Um, but I'm certainly no PhD at that. And I've been so far removed from, uh, bench, uh, bench research in this area that I need to collaborate with other people. So, you know, I did a recent project looking at, uh, deep sequencing of the NF2 gene and vestibular schwannoma and identified a, I identified a group in our institution that was very knowledgeable and interested in collaborating. And so know your institution, know the resources that are, that are there. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people in the PhD lab need someone like you and they need somebody who knows the clinical questions and together you form a good team. And so, you know, identify who's out there and don't try to reinvent the wheel, uh, work, work on other people who already know the different, um, uh, the different aspects of research. So like for at, at my institution, for example, we have a great epidemiology uh, database that we've uh, tapped into several times. We have an outstanding anatomy lab, a temporal bone lab uh, that we can do image guidance and, and do different uh, special scans on. And uh, we have very nice um, videography and photography equipment uh, for anatomical studies. Um, there's just a, I think it's really important to think about what your resources are at your institution and try to uh, take advantage of those as much as you can. And transitioning a little bit now, how, how do you identify a good research topic? Um, so, you know, if you, it's, it's a good question. It really depends on where you are in your career and if you've developed your uh, decision to pursue a certain uh, subspecialty or fellowship, et cetera. For the person, you know, in your PGY1 through PGY3 in particular, a lot of people are still an open book and they're really deciding on what direction they're going to go. And it, it might even create some level of anxiety because you say, well, what should, I be, what should I be researching? I don't know what field I'm going to go into. Um, early on, it, what people are looking for in a curriculum vitae or CV or your application later on for fellowship and jobs, if you're doing an academic job, is that you have an inquisitive uh, personality, uh, you're driven, and that you're consistent in your research work. And so even if it's not specifically on the topic that you ultimately end up going into, that's okay. If you are, if you have uh, declared what you want to go into or you're further along in your residency, it is advantageous to focus on areas that we're going to help you later in your career. But again, um, it's not an absolute uh, critical aspect. Um, I will say that uh, just as a cautionary note, uh, anything that you publish stays with you. So, you know, if it's a really hot topic or a sexy topic, um, like, maybe cleft palate surgery or cochlear implantation or transoral robotic surgery, you really have to publish 20 or 30 papers in that area for you to even be recognized for your contributions many times, just because it's such a popular topic. But if you're first author on an undesirable topic, um, uh, you, that might stick with you and you might be asked to give international, you might get international referrals or be asked to t talk about this on at podium talks later on. So it sounds very funny. Um, and again, the ultimate goal is to, to provide better patient outcomes and patient care in the future, but you should be a little strategic about uh, what you're going to uh, publish on. Um, when you're first thinking about an idea, you have to really think about what's the angle, what's the hook, why are people going to want to read this? Um, you want to present it in a way that grabs their attention to some level uh, because the same thing that grabs the attention of the reader will grab the attention of the reviewer. And in general, uh, to get published in a decent subspecialty journal in otolaryngology, you have to have, uh, you know, one of three things. You have to have a large number relative to the, to the disease. So if it's a super rare thing, it's okay if you only have 10 patients maybe. But if it's more common, you have to have more patients. Look for something that's novel, something that hasn't been really studied very well. 
of course, uh, being able to repeat data is a critical part of all science. But if it's been studied several times before, it's just less novel. Or think of a new spin on an old topic. These are the, you know, the as far as, you know, what the hook is, what will get it published. These are things to, that are important to, to consider. Um, before you're starting your project, think about what your institution has to offer. If your clinic or your group has a very robust esthesioneuroblastoma referral network, then that might be a really good thing to study. Um, but if you don't get a lot of referrals for a spe- specific disease topic, it might just be difficult for you to, to study it very well or come up with a reasonable paper. When you have an idea and you've established what you think the hook is, make sure you really comb through the literature. Spend a good half an hour or even an hour really looking through the literature. Uh, you know, the, the, the saying is, there's nothing new underneath the sun. And it's true. If you've had a really good idea, chances are that somebody else has looked at it, but not always. Um, and even if they have, it's not uh, crazy to repeat it, um, or particularly if you can have a new spin on it. But spend some time looking in the, the literature early on because it might save you a lot of time later. When you're actually starting your project um, and you're starting to design your research project and you're dis- determining what variables you want to collect, that initial literature review is also going to be very helpful. Look at the variables other people have studied or analyzed when they research the same topic. Think about it, mull it over, send it to others to, re- to evaluate, uh, and then look at it again and send it to your mentor because there's nothing more painful than being halfway through your project and deciding that you wanted to collect more variables. In a prospective study, it could be a deal breaker. In a retrospective study, it just means you're going to go through all those charts all over again. And I still uh, do this sometimes, but I, I have become more and more deliberate over time uh, to try to to to, to um, really think about that aspect, and then before you start, it's not a it's always a good consideration, particularly for comparative studies, to look at uh, to to do a power analysis. Yeah, I think that's really great. Um, one thing I noticed, you know, over the years working together, that's worked out really well is having an umbrella IRB where we can do multiple studies that all fall under one overarching topic, and it just speeds up the process. You don't have to wait several weeks or write a new IRB every time, a new study protocol, wait several weeks for the board to review it. It just, you you have a new idea that often comes after doing a project and you can just start on it right away and not waste any time. Um, but the, the next topic I w- just wanted to touch on was, you know, especially as we think about productivity and being efficient with our time and residency is just the different types of research we can engage in. Can, can you talk a little bit about all the different types of research out there and your thoughts on those? So that's a great question. Um, we've all uh, seen the evidence ladder all the way from randomized control trial down to expert opinion. And um, as you, as with everything in life, the more work that's put, the, um, the more meaningful something is, is oftentimes uh, directly related to, with the amount of sweat that's put into it also. And when you think about a project and you think you're thinking about, should I be doing a randomized control trial, a controlled longitudinal study, an uncontrolled longitudinal study, a cross-sectional study, or just an expert opinion project, um, you really are thinking about balancing the feasibility of something and the scientific merit of something. You know, of course, a randomized double-blinded prospective study with 10,000 patients comparing cobalation and electrocautery tonsillectomy is a lot better than an observational study with only 200 patients. But you know, the latter is much more likely to get done during your residency or even during your lifetime. And so you really have to balance these two things. A cold truth is that if you don't publish it, it didn't happen. And a lot of people will say, you know, the process is valuable. And I I won't argue with that. I do think the process is helpful. Um, But at the end of the day, 
um, if it, if you don't publish it, the idea is not out there. People can't try to repeat it or build upon it. And certainly for you on your on your resume or your application, it, it really doesn't matter. As it, as we kind of alluded to earlier, you can say, you know, some in some ways, saying you worked in a lab for two years and not having anything to show is almost worse than not even working in the lab to begin with, because it just shows that you were there the whole time but weren't able to produce anything. And so, uh, on many levels, you need to be a finisher uh, as much as you can. Uh, try to get uh, something out of your time there. When, you, when you're thinking about building your resume, uh, we kind of uh, discussed this earlier, but nobody has, um, you know, giant uh, randomized controlled trials as their only publications. You'll have a mixture of case reports, retrospective reviews, prospective studies, and, um, and that's what's expected. Um, our, you know, our goal in our field is to try to research, uh, improve the quality of the research and evidence uh, but the reality is when you're early on uh, beginning the process, just working on some of these lower evidence st- uh, type studies or study designs also just helps you get your feet wet. It helps you become a good scientific writer. Um, and uh, I think it's a very reasonable way to, to go about it. You know, one topic that I think, especially when starting out, if you haven't done much research, can be a little bit daunting is just the topic of good research etiquette. You know, often it takes several papers to get an idea of what, what does authorship typically look like? What is, um, how does that interaction go? Can you just touch on what good research etiquette is in your mind? Yeah, so it's true. Um, it sometimes can be a sticky topic. Some, you know, sometimes people will have the feeling that uh, they did most of the work when in fact uh, they might not have. Um, some people might uh, feel that, you know, most of the patients being studied were their patients and so they uh, should um, have a good position on a paper. Or in, in uh, there is a lot of truth to these things. It's just, just it sometimes is a sensitive topic. Uh, there is an actual guideline for authorship that we're, as scientists, supposed to adhere to. Um, it's the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, and there's basically four criteria that you're supposed to meet to technically be an author. But um, uh, practically speaking, these items are variably followed, but uh, it just demonstrates that you have some level of involvement. So you're supposed to have significant involvement in the study conception, data collection, and analysis. You should have involvement in drafting and revising the manuscript. You should approve the final version of the manuscript, and then ultimately you're responsible for the accuracy and integrity of, all, uh, integrity of the data. And those are the official guidelines. Um, you know, one of the questions that always comes up is, what's you know, what's the most important positions on a paper for authorship? In general, a first author is the most desirable position. There is a, a situation where you can denote an asterisk uh, for being co-primary first author. It's not done very frequently, but there are some uh, unique situations where two people might have... Um, contributed equally to an important paper, and so it's a reasonable thing to do. The second best position on a paper is controversial, and it probably depends on where you are in your career. Uh, usually the second author indicates that you've done the second amount, most amount of work on the project. Um, and, uh, it's, and for most people, particularly early on, that's the second best position. Um, usually the, the senior author or the last author is the, is the PI or the head of the, head of the lab. And uh, that can also be a desirable position. That's usually typically more of a position for somebody who's a little bit further along in their career and providing larger oversight, but not doing as much directly in the project. But uh, different groups will look at this differently, and it's there's definitely not a right or wrong answer. Um, you know, typically the corresponding author, the corresponding author can be any can be an author anywhere in the sequence of the paper. Typically, the corresponding author is often the senior author, but not always, or the first author. 
but it usually should be assigned to the functioning study PI or the head of the lab. And it should be assigned to somebody who's going to be around that data for a while. So sometimes you'll get a you know letter back as the to the corresponding author asking a question about some of the data a couple of years later. And so it's helpful to have somebody that's going to be there for a while uh, from that perspective. Um, it's a little awkward, but sometimes it's just better to have the conversation up front and define people's roles on the project um, and then outline the expectations of the first author. Uh, particularly when you're just starting out in doing your research, um, it's difficult to really know what the expectations are, what, what's expected of you, what's expected on other parts, uh, other members of the team. Um, and if you have that conversation up front, you can say, this is something I'm very interested in. I'd like to lead this if it's okay with the group, and this is what I plan to do. Um, and if you define that up front and you follow through on that, it, it ends up being a much more healthy and viable long-term relationship. Uh, there's no question that being collegial is critical, particularly when you're working in a group of people. If you found that good research team, there, there are plenty of times I've worked on a project where I felt I did a significant amount of the work and sometimes most of the work, but I wasn't first author. I've, re I've been a middle author and completely rewritten papers before. Um, and I, I, all of us have been in those, those situations. Um, and, but, you know, in, as in general, it all balances out. Sometimes um, you'll be in a position where you're put on a paper uh, and you're not doing as much work as many of the other people are on there. So it all averages out. So the general rule is, you know, play nice in the sandbox uh, and be collegial as, as much as reasonable. I think this is really helpful um, to avoid, um, you know, a difficult a difficult interaction with other people. That's understanding the responsibility as the first author. Many times you'll you might assist on a paper, but early on in your research, you might also try to take on and be first author for a paper. And in general, the responsibility of the first author is constructing a tertiary manuscript. So you're authoring the great majority or all of the manuscript, and you should edit it so it's high quality and doesn't have spelling, syntax, errors, etc. Um, you would do the manuscript submission. You'd collect authorship permissions. I, I, there's just no other way to say this, and I and I think it's important to say you just can't turn in a, a bad paper or a half-written paper to the rest of the authors to improve. It's just not a cool thing. And um, even if they're being nice and don't say anything, they're not going to, it's just a bad situation. So before you, as a first author, you should finish a paper that you think is, in your mind, the best you could finish it, uh, the best it could be. And then you can send it on to others for input. It's not, it's definitely very reasonable to meet periodically with your mentor to say, this is the direction I'm going. This is my outline. This is how I think I'm going to work through it. But you shouldn't um, have have them be correcting punctuation, capitalization, incomplete sentences, syntax. It's just, it's just not cool. I think that's just, uh, you know, a very important thing to to bring up because it's not, you know, those out those um, uh, those roles aren't always well defined or they're sometimes ambiguous. Yeah, I, you know, as we've been going along here, I think we've slowly been building throughout the whole research process, you know, starting with motivation, picking a mentor, picking a topic, and now just talking about this. I think the next natural point is talking about writing the manuscript and whatnot. But I think oftentimes before you sit down and write the manuscript, it can be helpful um, to get an idea of what journal, what's the audience I'm trying to target. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how to decide on a journal? Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, just like when you just like being a good speaker understands their audience, being a good uh, manuscript author also uh, is a uh, parallels that you should know your audience you're writing to. Um, so um, in general, uh, you'll want to be thinking about the target journal you're going to be submitting to. So if you're if you're 
uh, submitting to a high impact factor journal for general um, internal medicine doctors or frontline um, providers, uh, you'll write it very differently. Um, there's something called an impact factor, and that helps you look at the general quality of a journal, um, and it helps you weigh different journals. So it can be daunting. You're you're a, uh, you're just starting off in research, and you know there's like 50 different ENT journals. Then there's another hundred peripherally related ones like audiology or you know, uh, general plastic surgery, or all these radiation oncology, all these ones that are peripherally related to our field also. And it can just be overwhelming to, to sort out what a good journal is, et cetera. Obviously, the most easy thing is to talk with your mentor about this, but I think it's helpful to understand uh, what impact factor is. So the impact factor is a number that's assigned to a, a journal for any given year. And it's based on the number of recent citations or publications that, have, that the journal's received. And so it's an indirect measure of the relative worth of the journal to the subspecialty or the specialty. So the more impact it's had, the more references, more references it will have. I do think it's worth pointing out that the impact factor, major limitation of the impact factor is that if you're in a small field, um, naturally your paper is going to be referenced less, even if the data or even if the research is well done. And so most otolaryngology journals have impact factors of anywhere from 0.5 to 3, and uh, very few are outside of that. In contrast, general medicine impact factor uh, journals, impact factors for general medicine journals are often 4, 8, 10, 20, 30, 50, or higher. And it's just because there's um, they are often high-quality journals, but there's just more people referencing in them because there's more primary care doctors, for example. Um, but it does give you a general rule of thumb uh, to start looking at uh, uh, different journals. You know, another topic that I think is really relevant to our specialty related to this is just first right of refusal when you submit a conference abstract. I know that t- typically comes up with COSM or Academy. Can you just touch on that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's different between different fields. Um, so like I'll publish in the, uh, some articles in the neurosurgical literature, and they basically uh, very uncommonly will do this. They'll, so if you submit an abstract to a, to a meeting conference, there's often a, an affiliated journal with that conference or that associated society, and then you have an obligation to submit your manuscript to that associated journal. And so um, in essence, in, in otolaryngology, almost all major meetings have a journal manuscript submission obligation or requirement. So for example, if you're submitting uh, an abstract, an oral presentation to COSM, you're going to have to submit to the affiliated journal. So if it's uh, ANS or AOS, you'll have to submit to otology and neurotology. Or if it's triological, you'll submit to the laryngoscope, for example. And the same thing holds true for the academy. So if you submit a, a manu- or an oral abstract to the academy meeting, that uh, usually takes place in the fall, you'll often have to submit an associated uh, manuscript for that oral abstract uh, a little bit uh, before the meeting. And so that's just one thing to consider um, when you're uh, submitting an abstract. Yeah, I think it, it can feel a little bit binding at first, you know, if, if you feel like you want to submit it somewhere else and it's important to recognize from the get-go. Um, another topic is just balancing this idea of a high impact journal versus reaching your target audience. You know, obviously any jam has maybe the highest impact factor in our field, but that's not what maybe all the otologists are reading. Um, so can you touch on that a little bit? You know, most of the, the niched topics that we're, that we're publishing on and for me, neurotology, um, a lot of the general journals aren't going to really have a great interest to publish because their readership uh, really isn't niched in that same field. 
Um, if you do have a very high impact publication you're working on, it's always this balance. Do you publish in the highest impact factor journal uh, to reach the most, you know, the broadest audience, but per- potentially at the expense of reaching your target audience or the people that might be most interested in hearing it. So it's this, or reading about it. So it's this balance. Um, and there isn't a good answer. Most people will, in general will go for a high impact factor between the two, but they're both uh, considerations. And what about open access journals? I think that's being more commonly, I see that, you know, nowadays. Yeah, so open access uh, journals, uh, open access um, in, uh, refers to a situation where there's usually an associated cost. It could be anywhere from $300 to $500 or $1,000 or even $2,000 that, that when you submit a manuscript to the journal that you'll have to pay that obligatory fee and then they'll be open openly available for everybody um, nationally and internationally. It helps um, disseminate the, the publication data uh, so in that way, it's good. It's more likely to be referenced because it's uh, freely available. But I th- there's been many times residents and, and myself, I've been blindsided by this. You'll submit something to a journal. It's usually one that you haven't, uh, you know, it's the one that's a little bit more obscure, the one that you haven't published a lot in. You'll submit it there and then it will get accepted. And then you'll get these emails saying, okay, pay your fee. Sometimes it's one of those small radial checkboxes that you're going through when you're submitting it and you don't even look at it because you're just trying to get through the 50 buttons you have to press. Um but uh, just, I guess, uh, go into it with open eyes, understanding that uh, some of these journals have open access fees. There's a, you know increasing trend. The more you publish, the more you'll see this. But, you know, most of us, you know, most of, uh, you know, staff physicians will get about anywhere from two or three to 50 predatory uh, soliciting uh, journal um, requests on the overnight. So I'll, you know, wake up in the morning, I'll come into work and I'll see like 20, uh, requests for different publications in different journals I've never heard of before. And then you'll, um, you can get it published in there usually without any peer review or anything, um, but they're often with high open access fees. And so in general, most people stay clear of publishing in any, any of those journals. All right. And I think once we've established who our target audience is, I think the next natural discussion is writing the paper. Um, I think this topic can be pretty daunting for at least early on. Um, Can you help us out with how to think about writing the paper? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would say that in most situations, writing the paper is the bottleneck in the project. I can't, I mean, there's just been countless times where a good data set's been sitting there for a long time. And that's just the last step. And um, unfortunately, uh, that is often the case, but it shouldn't be. I think if you have a, a, a good standard way to approach this uh, systematically and taking each step, you know, one step at a time, I think getting a well-written paper shouldn't be a daunting task and is uh, very achievable. And we'll kind of go through some of the steps. So, you know, broadly, when you're writing your paper, consider the target audience. We already talked about this, but if you're publishing in a subspecialty journal, you don't have to provide all this background information about the topic. You can kind of jump into it because you know your target audience, you, you know they're going to know a lot about it. But if it's a general medical journal, you have to provide a lot more context for it. Consider the journal requirements. So most papers should be anywhere between 2,500 and 3,500 words. You should be able to get most uh, most points across in that amount of time longer papers are generally generally not better. Most people just don't have that attention span. So if you can conci- make it concise in less than 3,000 words, uh, that's ideal. Of course, uh, write in third person. Include some figures to break things up. 
Um, in, in general, it should be written for blinded review. So you shouldn't say in a previous um, manuscript, our group published blah, or the, you know, the blank institution IRB, that sort of stuff. So it should be written for blinded review, although not all journals are blinded. Just as I said earlier, one of the most important things to remember as, as a resident working through this is trying to publish one or two papers a year and being first author. The second thing that I think is just absolutely critical and is completely um, missed is the idea that presentation is so, so, so important. I can't emphasize it enough. Content is extremely important, but I'll tell you that presentation, at least for getting it through the peer review process, is extremely important and perhaps just as important as con of content, believe it or not. If the reviewer is going through and they're seeing poor English, they're seeing um, punctuation errors, they're seeing numbers not adding up, they're going to smell blood and they're going to think that every single aspect of this publication was not done well and they're going to tear it apart and then they're going to they're going to reject it. If they go through and it was just effortless to read, they didn't identify any errors, they didn't identify any punctuation, anything, they're not going to start second guessing your statistical methods, they're not going to start second guessing anything else. So. I cannot emphasize enough how uh, presentation is just important. And it's it's one thing that we should be able to control very well. So we'll talk about it a little bit later. But again, I've, I would say if uh, highlighting the most important parts of this talk, that's probably one of the most important parts that you should remember. Uh, nail down the hook. Uh, as we talked about earlier, each paper should not have more than one or two primary objectives. Uh, determine what this is from the beginning so that your outline is structured to support the conclusions or uh, to work around that hook. And again, consider your target audience. When you're preparing your manuscript, I if it's, a, if it's a topic I don't know a lot about, particularly when I was starting out, I would read 10 or 15 papers on the subject that were considered better papers, just to make sure you're touching on the main points or the main issues yourself. And that will also help you develop your uh, list of variables you're gonna study, et cetera. Um, I always say that after you read those papers, it's really important you distance yourself in time so you don't inadvertently plagiarize. I think none of us are, you know, we're all have gotten far in our career. No, none of us intentionally plagiarize. But if you just read a sentence in a manuscript and it just sounded great, um, it's uh, it could be inadvertently easy to do yeah, unintentionally. So um, create an outline with a logical flow. Each paragraph should only convey one or two ideas, and each paragraph should generally build on the next so there's good flow. Avoid saying the same thing over and over again or having circular uh, discussions. I see that so frequently in a manuscript that I'm reviewing, uh, particularly from somebody who's starting off early on, they'll get they'll go through a point, go to another point, and then go back to the first point. You want to work through these things, have good flow, and uh, re avoid redundancy as much as possible. And again, the target length should be 2,500 to 3,500 words. Um, after you've written enough papers, you'll just have a general uh, flow that you go through in your head, a general checklist, a format for your title page, your cover letter, et cetera. And it just makes it easier because you can keep using that template and you're not reinventing the, rule, the, the wheel all the time. So when we talk about your the introduction, the introduction should provide the necessary background. It shouldn't be too lengthy. And in general, um, I think a perfect introduction usually has about three paragraphs. And of course you could break it up any way you want. But for me, you know, the first paragraph is the introduction to the subject. The second paragraph is the buildup. And then the third paragraph is setting the hook. The, sub, the subtle sales pitch. Why is this important? You're building the reader up to this and then you're telling them why uh, you're addressing a critical knowledge gap or building on something previous. Uh, the materials and methods section, it can be uh, lengthy depending on the type of study. Don't include any of the results in the materials and methods section. Um, 
it's basically uh, written so that somebody else could reproduce your work or, or uh, perform your same study based on that information. You can shorten it by referencing other papers. If you if uh, another group has published using same statistical methods uh, or same methods, uh, you could refer to them. And then, of course, you want to include your statistical analysis. In your results, don't explain your findings. You're just reporting your results. And provide structured paragraphs. Avoid too much overlap between text and figures and tables. Uh, consider headings, if appropriate, if it's long. And one of the best things I ever uh, was fortunate to do is to pair up with a very good statistician uh, that I work with on almost all my projects. She's she just does such a great job. She understands all the content well, and it makes my life so much better uh, from the standpoint of uh, publication. And also just, you know, the quality level is just up a, another bar. Um, for the discussion, uh, don't make it longer than two or three pages. Usually the first paragraph should be a summary of your key findings. Your next paragraphs are to compare it to what, what else is in the literature and then discuss future areas of study and discuss strengths and weaknesses at the end. Your conclusion should be one or two paragraphs and it should be, should be brass tacks only um, and don't overstate your claims. Um, so you, after you're done with your conclusions, most people use a program like EndNote uh, to organize um, and format the references. It's good to be able to do that. I obviously don't want to go through how to do that on this podcast, but I'd encourage you to talk to your mentor or another colleague that's familiar with it. So at that point, you're going to feel like you're done with your paper, um, but uh, you're not. So what you need to do is you need to set it aside for a while and then read it again and set it aside for a while, then read it again, then set it aside for a while and read it again and put several days in between because what you wrote down at the time made so much sense to you. But then when you came back, you, you would easily see how other people wouldn't be able to follow your logic or your flow. Um, and this just goes back to that main point. One of the main points of this whole talk is presentation is so critical when you're submitting a paper uh, for peer review. You want it to be written well. You know, a lot of people won't will have such a hard time writing a paper because they say they just feel like every sentence they write has to be their final sentence and it has to be perfect. Oftentimes you just start off by getting ideas down. It doesn't even have to, have, have to be full sentences. Work with an outline, start getting ideas down, start filling it in, and then you start make, uh, making it flow better and sound better. You're moving things around, but um, it's really common that I'll have, you know, 50 versions of a paper as I'm moving through them, which actually brings up another point. As you're working through it, save your different versions as you're going through. Uh, there's nothing more frustrating than um, having some error happen to a, to, a, to a document and then saving over it and getting rid of a lot of uh, back data. So I usually, you know, every, at least every couple of days when I'm working on a manuscript, I'll, I'll resave it with a new name. So you can go back to earlier versions if there's a problem. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry if that's a little dry, there's just no other way to cover it, but these are key things that I've learned over the, over the years that have helped me a lot is just having that, that process and in, in uh, a process that works well for me. And last topic that I wanted to touch on before we wrap things up for today is just the review process. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of the review process once you submit the paper? Absolutely. Everyone always thinks that if you, particularly earlier, early on, if you get a rejection, you take that, a lot of people take it very, very personally. And I've seen people uh, have it really affect them for a while. If they really put their heart and soul into a paper and then they get a, kind of a bad review back. But I want to point out a couple things. The review process is extremely subjective, extremely subjective. It could be that the reviewer got a flat tire earlier in the day when they came in, they were just in a bad mood. And that's not, I'm not joking. That really can happen. It's, it's very, very, very subjective. Um, it depends on the journal, but most journals in old laryngology don't have paid reviewers. They'll have editors and people on the editorial team, but 
the reviewers are generally uh, people out in the field and they don't have, most of them don't have specific training in how to review a paper well. And they don't use a rigid point sheet. So if you think you wrote a really good paper and your mentors do too, and you get a bad review, honestly, it's easy for me to say because I've published a number of papers, but just shrug it off. It doesn't make it not bother you. Just take the look at the critique, find out what they said. And if you think it's not right, then ignore it. And if you think there are some um, some valuable points, you can incorporate those in your paper and then resubmit it. But don't let those things get you down because um, it's so easy to, but it doesn't need to. Um, you know, there's no such thing as an absolutely perfect paper. Um, and if in uh, conversely, if your paper is rejected, doesn't mean it's a bad paper. In reality, probably about you know, 5% of papers are really, really, really good. And 20% are really, really bad. And everything else is in between. Um, so, you know, if you get a rejection, reevaluate it. Um, the review process is a lot more subjective than anyone would like to admit. I would say that it's probably true that every single reasonable paper can get published. And I, this sounds funny, but I think you just have to say it. It's just a matter of how low you're willing to go in your impact factor in your journal. Um, but if you put a lot of time into something... Um, you know, shop it around a little bit to a couple different journals and see what kind of responses you get. There's some general categories for responses that you'll get back from a journal. Accept means that no further revisions are required. Uh, to get a straight out acceptance is uncommon. It probably happens in 5% of the time or less. Provisional acceptance usually is synonymous with uh, minor review. It means that you know, the re editorial team has reviewed it and they think it has significant merit, but they only want you to address some minor points and uh, condition conditionally accepting it. That's probably 20% of the time at the at the beginning. Major revision is much more common. The, that means the reviewers found merit in it, uh, but significant merit in it, but they also feel that there's significant edits or changes that need to be made. And then rejection is that they won't consider it even with revision. So those are the different things you can get back. Um, the response time is variable for journals. Um, uh, typically, after you submit something, you'll hear back in anywhere between one and three months. Don't contact the journal earlier than that. Um, it's usually, you know, early on, I read a lot into it. I said, oh, it's so bad. <laughs> they're, they're still reviewing. It's taking them three months. I just don't want to drop the bomb on me that this is going to get rejected. The length of time it's gone has usually has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of their paper, the likelihood it's going to get accepted or rejected. It has to do with the fact that they're having a hard time getting the reviewers to turn in their submissions. Everyone, you know, the reviewers are busy clinicians often. And they're just not getting them in. It's very rarely because you're because they're having an additional review because they thought it was bad or something like that. So if you get a request, if you get a um, request for revision, it's a safe way of accepting your paper, provided that you're able to uh, address most of the points that are um, brought up by the reviewers. I want to make the point that you don't have to answer all of the reviewers' requests or. Uh, give in to all the requests. Sometimes it's not not common, but sometimes the reviewers will actually try to steer your paper. They believe it should say something else that you don't intend it to say or don't think it should say based on their biases and don't let that happen. Uh, you can simply say something very politely to say um, respectfully if it uh, provided the editor and reviewer agree, I would really um, uh, like to keep this main point or uh, present it this way. And usually they'll allow you to do that. Um, so in general, you want to answer, address most of them, or give them to most of them if you can. But uh, you do, you should stand your ground if it's if uh, it's being steered or put into a direction you don't think it should it should go. When you're constructing your response to review document, just as before, have a template system. Use this, you know, develop a, a system that works well for you, so you're you're not recreating the cover letter every single time and not recreating your document every single time. 
But as a, as a general rule for when you're writing your response to review, you want to provide point-by-point responses, be respectful, refer to page, page numbers and line numbers, track changes in the revised manuscript, and remember, 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 it is all about presentation. It's critical. Um, so what do you do if your paper gets rejected? Review the responses and have an honest appraisal of the manuscript. Why did it get rejected? If you think it's really good, incorporate those constructive recommendations and resubmit to a similar level journal. If you think it's really not that great, uh, honestly, and you can incorporate those constructive recommendations, and then you might submit to a lower impact factor uh, journal. But again, I guess if there was a third main point from this in this talk, I would say this, the review process is extremely subjective and a rejection doesn't mean it's a bad paper and any reasonable manuscript can get accepted um, and maybe not at the, in the highest tier journal, but can get accepted. Awesome. Well, I think that'll about wrap things up for today's discussion. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Dr. Carlson, before we close? No, I just, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the chance to present this. I think it's a, you know, it's a really difficult topic to present because so many people have different styles of doing research and so many people might um, present things differently. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's really nuanced. These are things that I've, again, either happen, you know, happened upon and worked well for me or things I've uh, learned the hard way from going through it. Um, but again, it's worked for me. Um, I've, uh, you know, the, I would say the most rewarding part of my career is, uh, is taking care of patients and providing, uh, you know, good outcomes for our patients. But, you know, on a, on a, on a broader level, there's a great amount of satisfaction uh, that I get when I feel like I've published a paper that's resulted in a change in care at our center or in my own practice or more globally in the rest of the specialties. And there's no other way that you really can do that except through research and publication. Um, and so I'd encourage you to stay involved, um, even if it's something that doesn't come directly natural to you. It's a necessary evil for academic promotion, but it's also something rewarding for you down the road if you stick with it. Well, awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time on uh, coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I'll just wrap things up today by just providing a brief summary of what we talked about. Um, talked a little bit about establishing good motivation for why you do research. Ultimately, that's to improve the care of patients, but also recognizing that it's a critical component to academic medicine and progressing in your career. And fundamental to that, especially as a trainee, is identifying a good mentor early on, um, someone who's productive, someone who's is working a lot, maybe early to mid in their career, and then working together as a team, finding good resources at your institution, and then maybe teaming up with a couple residents that are similarly minded and saying, why don't we all work together, divide and conquer, and, and we all benefit in the process. Um, talked about how to decide on a research topic, um, the scope of things, what type of study design, knowing that oftentimes it's a trade-off between scientific merit and feasibility is something especially important to consider during a a finite period of residency when you're only given so much time to do research and you're quite busy in the time that you're not doing research. Talked a little bit about good research etiquette and the importance that as a primary author, you really are steering the ship. Um, The onus is on you to present a a very good final product to the the senior author and your co-authors when once you're done writing it and it needs to be an ownership that is um, established from the beginning. Talked a little bit about um, how to target different journals, impact factor, And then, of course, spending the last bit here on writing the paper and the review process. Well, we hope you find this episode helpful. 
Don't forget to check out our website at headmirror.com where all of our podcasts are keyword searchable and the content along with our entire surgical video atlas is organized by subspecialty. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.